0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Axis, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is Eddie Hamilton, an incredibly talented editor whose work includes Kick-Ass, Kingsman and Kingsman the Golden Circle, and the last two installments in the Mission Impossible franchise. In our episode, we cover a wide range of topics, among them Eddie's early love for cinema and experience with editing, his process with writer-director Christopher McQuarrie, and creating story on the go for Mission Impossible Fallout. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. Eddie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's, it's fantastic. It's a great pleasure. I thought we could start by asking you what is one of the earliest movie memory you can recall?
1: I think the earliest movie memory is Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which I must have seen when I was about four or five in a local cinema. I didn't get to see very much at the cinema when I was young. My my parents weren't really into movies that much, so, you know, the handful of times I did go had quite a big impact on me, I think. And so the first Star Wars I saw at the cinema was actually Return of the Jedi in 83, and uh, And I saw that twice. And I remember the first time I had to beg my friend's parents to take me because my parents just were not interested. And I didn't see Empire in the cinema. My funny story about Empire Strikes Back is a friend of mine had a storybook, an Empire Strikes Back storybook with full color pictures of the movie and, and a kind of abbreviated summary of what happened. And I remember I was in some kind of test at school, like an English test or something, and I finished 10 minutes early. And I grabbed this book out of my bag and was reading it. And I got to the bit where the big spoiler happens, right? For any of you who haven't seen it, um, Luke Skywalker learned something about his heritage, which is, and I remember looking at this book thinking, there's a mistake in this book, what's going on? What, what's happened? And uh, I was remember I couldn't say anything to anybody because I was sat in the classroom and people were still working on the English test and my brain was exploding having <laughs> just read this. I saw Temple of Doom in the cinema as well but I didn't see Raiders. Temple of Doom was the first Indiana Jones film I watched and I remember loving that and I still have a very soft spot for it. I think the opening 20 minutes is like pure cinema escapism. Really ambitious technically groundbreaking filmmaking with beautiful cinematography and great acting and fantastic spielberg sensibility
0: one thing that comes across i think is how excited you are about the art of editing and and how you consider it to be the best job quote the way to do a film justice is to look at the raw footage and make the best sequence that exists out of that which is a unique puzzle to that film only again i love the concept you're bringing up of being the first person to see the movie yeah. come to life and the emotion of two shots yeah. stitched together could you talk about how much you feel like you've grown and how how it is to see your work on the big screen and study that
1: you know with with maturity and life experience and technical editing experience your approach changes dramatically I think when I started out there was a lot of instinct and bad instincts I think as you mature in editing, you understand the power of a shot and you understand the power of not editing as well. And I think it's something which you have to feel it, obviously for each, for each sequence that you work on, but you know, having the confidence to, to let a shot play is just as important as, as making edits to kind of add energy and craft performances and, and, Quite often, if if two actors are on fire on screen, there's no need to cut at all, and your your eye is kind of moving, you're choosing the edit points by kind of moving your eyes from one bit of the screen to the other to look at the actors. Um, but then with action movies and suspense and things like that, you the audience's eyes need to be drawn to very specific things in order for bits of story to land. And so that's where editing and choosing to use close-ups and um, certain reaction shots from actors is crucial in order for story clarity to be you know, unambiguous for the audience. You know, it's, it's confusion is, is such an enemy to enjoyment of a film. And I'm very vigilant about making sure that the audience is never confused and, and listening to them if they say they are confused. In terms of how, how my approach to editing has changed over the years... My goal always was to edit as much as possible. It doesn't matter what it is, you know, even from sort of the age of 17 or so when I started, I would just take my VHS copies of different movies and and make montage reels of all the best bits. And then I would go and film stuff on a little video camera with some friends and edit it together. And it would would all be very rough and ready. and, And sometimes I'd even do little experiments where I'd try and edit in camera. So I'd only film the little sections that I knew I needed and try to kind of create little movies in camera just to see if if that was possible. And then helping as many people as possible. I did a psychology degree, but I spent pretty much every day making student films and student TV. I mean, I would probably spend six to eight hours a day doing that and maybe four or five hours a day studying for my psychology degree and literally every single day nearly 7 days a week I would spend making films and helping friends make films and so all all that experience just watching movies endlessly it's interesting when you watch a really good movie you don't really notice the editing it just works and you you have to go back and rewatch good movies and actually force yourself to study the editing sometimes because if it's really good, you just get engrossed in the characters and the story and you're just excited and thrilled again and again, you know, watching Aliens or Back to the Future or Die Hard or Robocop or, or you know, I love JFK, for example. It's just a masterpiece. But any of those, I can easily just get drawn in and forget. And so when you go back and you watch how they create suspense in Alien or Aliens or or how, you know, gun battles are filmed in Die Hard or whatever it is, you learn a lot about the power of an edit and about about the power of a close-up, and about the way to adjust the lengths of shots in a sequence so that you don't feel repetition. Mayday, mayday, anyone copying channel nine? Terrorists have seized the Nakatomi building and are holding at least 30 people hostage. I repeat, unknown number of terrorists, six or more armed with automatic weapons at Nakatomi Plaza, Century
0: City. Attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. No fucking shit, lady, do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza?
1: Even in a dialogue scene, you know, it's crucially important to, to have a variety of shot lengths to keep the audience engaged so they don't feel the kind of clockwork rhythm of edits, unless that's the point. And I, I think with, with a lot of experience comes a great understanding of, of the audience and how the audience interprets the, the images of your film and, and what they will take away from it. So, you know, you develop over time a very strong instinct of how the audience will react to the film if you choose a particular piece of music or if you choose to vary the length of a dissolve from a short dissolve to a long dissolve. What does that mean emotionally to the audience? Or if you cut the scene tighter, what, what does that give the audience? Or if you choose to play certain lines on other characters and when you choose to cut you know understanding the the emotional impact that that has on an audience I think comes with experience and so you know I'm always thinking about that when I'm working you know and and luckily I've been very busy the last few years so it's it's a daily skill that you polish like if you play a musical instrument you know you practice playing for sort of several hours a day six hours a day eight hours a day and it's the same with editing is if you're doing it eight or ten or 12 hours a day you're instincts and your insight into the power of what you're doing is razor sharp you know and it's it's very exciting you know you you don't stop learning but you you feel a greater sense of confidence in your own opinion I think based on the kind of many many years of experience that you have which is which is exciting and when you start out you just don't have any experience to back up your gut feeling about things you know so that's probably how things have changed over the years
0: talking about great editing allow me to skip ahead for a moment and mention x-men first class because he had the pleasure of working with with lee smith and he told a wonderful story the other night in regards to his creative process with christopher nolan and the idea of possibly working off selects. Do you feel like limited coverage can sometimes be more helpful on a creative level? And what was your relationship working with Lee?
1: Okay, so just, just to recap, when Lee works with Chris Nolan, they print film dailies. So they don't print all the negative, they print Chris Nolan's selected takes, they screen them in a theater off a work print And that work print is telecined and put into the Avid Media Composer. So they only have the director's selected takes to work from initially. Uh, They can always go back and ask for other prints to be struck if they want, but it means that there's a limited selection for each setup, camera setup. And it means that as an editor, you, you have less material to scan through and watch, which gives you then more time to edit the scene, but also less choices, so you can kind of make progress quicker. Whereas I come from a guerrilla filmmaking background, you know, years of very low-budget movies where you were filming on Super 16 film and every frame was valuable in the editing process. And so I would always get all the, the footage in the Media Composer so that I could watch it all and make sure that there was no kind of nuggets of gold left in the takes that the director didn't select on the day where are we going Dunkirk
0: no no we're going to England
1: we have to go to Dunkirk first
0: I'm not going back look at it
1: if we go there we'll die quite often in editing you 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 have to reconceive sequences and really refine performances and using those other takes is essential when you're trying to do that however arguably the more experienced the director the more experienced the actors and the dp the more kind of focused they are on what they want and the quicker they are to get it you know they're not experimenting quite so much they have an idea of what they want based on you know years of directing experience and they get the camera work and the actors to that point very quickly so and they are extremely confident about what takes are best but when you're working in a low budget world with people who are still kind of refining and learning the craft you know you need to have all the options on the table and and even you know on some big films you need to have options on the table but it was interesting quite often actually Lee would edit a scene with the selected takes and there was there was quite a lot of footage on X Men First Class. So then he would say, "Why don't you go through the rest of the footage and see if there's anything else there, and then present another version of the scene, and then I'll see if if I think it's better or if if I like it." And then and then he would sometimes go back in and repolish what I'd done, and and there was a col- sort of collaboration like that. I would tend to take some of the works in progress and polish the sound up quite a lot and work on the temp music and all that kind of stuff but we worked on certain sequences like there were bits of the film that I'd worked on there were bits of the film that he would worked on but sometimes I would go to Matthew Vaughan's house and work and I'd be working on bits of the film and sometimes Lee would I mean it was it was a very kind of open fluid collaboration but I was very grateful for that opportunity because it was really the first big studio film that I'd worked on And Matthew said to Lee, would you mind if Eddie came along and worked on the film as well? Because I'd just finished doing Kick-Ass with Matthew Vaughan. And Lee very graciously said, sure, yeah, Eddie can come along. And I, I learned an enormous amount from him and from his trusty associate editor, John Lee. And I have enormous, enormous respect for his skill as a storyteller and the speed at which he works.
0: This society won't accept us. We form our own. The humans have played their hand. Now we get ready to play ours. Who's with me?
1: You know, he would quite often just nail and edit the very first attempt and it wouldn't change. And sometimes I can do that But, you know, quite often you refine stuff a lot. But there there would be chunks of the first assembly that he did that just remained untouched until the movie was finished. And, you know, that just shows an enormous skill in editing and in storytelling, you know, which, you know, I hope to have one day. You know, it's it's something which you... You're always learning and improving, you know, every day. And uh, it was a tremendous experience. It was probably about nine months, I think, yeah, that we worked together on that film. It was very quick. I mean, it was a seven month shoot. We worked for kind of seven months during the filming and we only had about two months to finish the edit of the film after that. And so it was pretty intense, but exciting.
0: You mentioned temp music as well. And I wanted to use that topic to transition into talking about your process with directors because I think it's fascinating. I've heard you talk about the fact that Matthew Vaughn prefers to watch scenes with temp music in uh, as opposed to Christopher McQuarrie who doesn't. And I think while I agree that it's important to see if a scene works without music, I was wondering in an emotional way, what you think of both uh, ways of going about it and what do each one may or may not offer?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think. It's important when you're editing any scene, initially actually for most scenes, I, I don't actually have the sound on at all. Even dialogue scenes sometimes, I know what the actors are saying. And so I will I will actually edit the scene silent and just watch the rhythms of the scene and the emotions of the actors play out. And then I turn on the sound and listen to the, the kind of choppy dialogue that, that exists underneath and smooth it out and refine the edit when I'm doing a dialogue pass. And then I'll dial in some sound effects and Atmos tracks to kind of act as a bed in the scene. And Chris Macquarie loves to allow the scenes to live or die on the merits of the drama and the pressure and the suspense inherent in the scene without relying on music. Whereas Matthew, he has a pretty good idea of the kind of music that he wants. And I do, having worked with him for years and years. And so I can normally put music on that I know he will probably like. And he just loves seeing an assembly that feels kind of quite polished. You know, he doesn't like it to be rough around the edges. He likes to be reassured that the scene is delivering emotionally what he set out for the scene to do, you know. And sometimes with Chris McQuarrie, I will actually put music on myself just to help me feel the scene. And then I'll just not play it to him when he's watching the scene. And occasionally there, there are little bits, you know, on on Mission Impossible Fallout, Lorne Balfe had written two to three hours of music. He had written suites and, and varieties of the same suites sometimes. A suite would be kind of seven minutes, and then he would do it with a slightly different orchestration. Then he would do it with kind of more strings. Then he would do it with more synths or something. So we'd end up with with quite a lot of of kind of musical sketches, which we could listen to and put into the film. And when I heard, when I would listen to his music and I heard something that I think would work at a particular point in the, point in the movie, I would either go, "I'm going to try that for this scene when it's eventually filmed," or I'd just stick it on the scene and just see how it felt. And then occasionally, Chris would go what do you think about music for this? And I'd be able to switch on the music and play it and go, well, this seemed to work. And this is something that Lorne wrote and it seems to have the right energy or it seems to have the right intensity or the right emotion for this moment. You know, it, it it, it doesn't fight the dialogue or it keeps the audience on their toes or it's building to a huge climax, something like that. And there are moments in the film where we found very good uses of music, which actually stayed pretty much till the, to the end of the, of the process. I mean, a lot of it changed, but there were, there were one or two places where, you know, you felt it was right and the organic evolution of the creative process tested it and tested it and it keep, it keeps withstanding all the tests of the audience and eventually kind of made it through to the finished film.
0: What do you see? Someone who wants to
1: know what the fuck is going on. I see a young
0: man with potential, a young man who is loyal. Who can do as he's asked, and who wants to do something good with his life. If you're prepared to adapt and learn, you can transform. Only in this case, I'm offering you the opportunity to become a Kingsman.
1: A tailor. A Kingsman agent. Like a spy. Of sorts. I I think music is quite often half of the cinema going experience and i really can't think of a great film that doesn't also have a great score you know i think i think it's they go know, hand in hand they go hand in hand and any number of movies you could watch with no music and just not feel anything i'd be listening to this amazing podcast called the soundtrack show which i highly recommend if none of you have heard it it's only started this year so they they've only done maybe 15 or 20 episodes so it, you can catch up very quickly And the host, David W. Collins, is a composer and an actor and he's extremely articulate about the science and the history of of music in human art, you know, in human creativity, but then especially about film music. And the last couple of episodes of the podcast were about the music that Bernard Herrmann wrote for Psycho and how that film would be unwatchably flat without the incredible score that puts you in an emotional state throughout the film to be completely engaged you know so music is enormously powerful and one of the things that we did on fallout to address notes on the pace of the film towards the beginning was was rescore it a couple of times to try different approaches to the score and when we found the right tempo and the right orchestration for a cue the audience then would not feel the length of a scene you know they would be engaged with the scene there are some times where we recut sequences but surprisingly many times we rescored certain sections and then people found that they they were engaged correctly you know it's a big challenge because fallout is a very long film you know i think it's two hours 23 something like that without credits and so to keep people engaged for that length of time is, a, is an enormous challenge I personally quite like long films I quite like getting lost in long films you know in, in ambitious epics but we've all seen movies that are 90 minutes that feel like an eternity you know and we've seen movies that are three hours that fly by the longer the film is the you know it's incredibly difficult to keep The pace of the film accurate and right as you're watching it you know constantly from the beginning to the end it really requires a lot of a lot of care and attention and love on every shot in the film quite frankly and then all the transitions and then and then the the place of the music and the kind of the music in the kind of music in order to make everything feel correct you know when you're watching it When you're young and you're watching movies, they just feel like they've always been like that, you know, but it's thousands and thousands of hours of work from hundreds of people and a massive evolution from the first assembly of a film which is all almost always unwatchably bad even Michael Kahn will say that you know it's normally a very depressing experience for everybody watching the first assembly of a film but then you work at it and you work at it and you improve it and and eventually you you get it to a place where you can show it to an audience and then listen to their feedback and refine it further and you know, keep working at it and keep working at it until it's as good as it can be. One of the things I I learned from Hollywood producers when I was first exposed to bigger budget filmmaking was the lengths that they go to make sure the film is as good as it can possibly be in terms of spending time filming pickups and making difficult decisions regarding the, the budget that would mean ultimately a better film and a greater return, you know, where in the independent world, you physically don't have the budget available to maybe go back for a week with the cast and and film pickups to improve the storytelling. But it's something which, you know, Hollywood does on almost every film and the films dramatically improve as a result, which, you know, coming from an independent background wasn't something that I'd experienced much, but now it's just something which, you know, I think Peter Jackson did three months of pickups for each of the Lord of the Rings films. Wow. You know, three months of filming to make each film work better. Same with the Hobbit, and even on Marvel movies, they do that. They always have a couple of weeks or three weeks or longer of pickups built into the schedule, and the actors are booked, and they know that they're going to go back and improve this, the film as a result. The pain of the the production headaches is totally worth it. Ultimately, you know, if the film works.
0: Allow me to transition into your work on on Mission Impossible, both for Rogue Nation and and Fallout. And I wanted to start off by asking you about your creative collaboration with with Chris McQuarrie. And the reason I admire so much your work and, and his, and Tom as well as a producer's, cause you're not afraid of finding the story as you go. And what I mean by that is that it, there seems to be this great metaphor of, of McHugh building the plane on the way down as it's about to hit the ground, where whether it's script writing and, and rewriting the scenes or whether a hiatus allowing you to have time to look at the film and not be afraid to reassemble. You yeah. know, let go of what's not necessary and hold on to what we need more of. Could you talk about uh, your experience with him, why you you think you work so well, and and what he taught you as as a filmmaker? Yeah,
1: you know, the way that Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise work is they're like brothers who have a similar passion for movies and a very similar taste in movies, and they have a shorthand. They have a shorthand in prep, they have a shorthand on the set, they have a shorthand in post and they have a very similar sensibility. So Tom doesn't need to say very much for Chris to get what he wants. They discuss the film an enormous amount in private. There's a lot of creative discussions that happen that that, that we're not aware of. Then the script I- emerges and we start filming. But one of the things that they do every night is they look at the pages for the following day they know everything they filmed up to that point and they look at it the, and they go, is this the best that it can be tomorrow? Can we improve it? Like what we know about the characters based on everything we filmed up to now, what what we've learned about the, the actors and about what they, what they brought to the character, how can we maximise the strengths of this? And so every single night they go and they look at the pages and they think about how it can be better. And so every morning there's new... New script because Chris is a a phenomenally talented and fast writer. New pages arrive every day and it means that the creative process is quite fluid and the actors have to be able to work with that fluidity. But ultimately it makes for a story which evolves and benefits from the evolution in terms of strength on a day-to-day basis. In editing, I'm very flexible because I know that when the footage comes in. It's probably going to be quite different from the script that I have. The other thing is that Chris will sometimes come up with some of the best lines on take five or take six of a setup. He'll say, I've got a great idea, try that. You know, his mind is, is kind of understanding that the clock is ticking and he's only got two setups left before he has to move on. And sometimes this sparks of genius come out at the last second, which are terrific lines which make their way into the scene. Sir, I think there's something you need to know. I'm gonna stop I you right there. You had a terrible choice to make in Berlin. Recover the plutonium or save your team. You chose your team and now the world is at risk. Some flaw deep in your core being simply won't allow
0: you to choose between one life and millions. And you see that as a sign of weakness. To me, that's your greatest strength. It also tells me I can count on you to cover my ass because coming over here from the CIA was a lateral move. Some say a step down, but I did it because of you. Don't make me regret it. I
1: keep my creative process very fluid. I try and sketch the scenes together for him so he can see them. He understands the power of editing and he understands how we have to dispose of anything that that doesn't work. He never tries to cling on to stuff that doesn't work, you know. The other thing is I always try everything. Any suggestion that anyone has, I always try it. I think, you know, the power of the tools that we have Mean that if someone has an idea, I can usually try it in 15 or 20 seconds. We can watch that idea play out and immediately have an opinion if it's better or worse than it was, you know, a minute before. And rather than articulating it or deconstructing the idea intellectually and trying to evaluate the merits of the idea... I just try something and watch it. And quite often everyone is in agreement on what works or what doesn't work. But if I feel that a previous version was better, I'm happy just to sort of keep it on the back burner and live with this different version for a a few weeks or screen it and see how it plays. And quite often I'm surprised, you know, my my opinion may well have been wrong, but I always have the old version there if we decide to go back for any reason. So I'm never really precious about the work that I do and I'm happy to recut anything immediately. I know ultimately... And Chris knows, and and Tom Cruise knows, that the audience is right. And we do test these films thoroughly, and we listen closely to what the audience tells us about pace and about clarity and about confusion, and we do something about it. So ultimately, the audience is right. There's no ego. I mean, Chris is aware that he's making what we're hoping is excellent mass entertainment, and his goal is to make excellent mass entertainment and try and deliver a satisfying movie going experience for as many people on the planet as possible you know one of the things that tom cruise did early in his career is he would travel around the world watching his films with different audiences and different cultures to understand what different audiences reacted to and one of the great things he said when we were making fallout you know people were saying i think the motorbike chase in paris is a little bit too long And he said, well, I promise you, it's not not too long for a Korean audience. They're going to love that stuff. And he's dead right. You know, when they go and show the film in Korea, people love that. And it's only about 10 seconds too long for a European audience. But Tom knows that on balance, it's better to please more people and have 10 seconds of extra stuff, you know. And it really does come down to that kind of can we cut 10 more seconds out of this scene because the film is you know 2 hours and 22 minutes and we need to get time out and how do we do it and so you're constantly kind of testing every shot in the movie to see if it earns its place in the in the final edit so that's kind of how i work with chris and tom in the edit, you know, it's a very fluid creative process. It's great fun. We all geek out about movies and about music and about, you know, the films that we've watched and actors that we love and directors and cinematographers and editors and visual effects and, and technology and all that kind of stuff we're talking about all the time. And so we work very hard, but we also make sure that it's an enjoyable collaboration, you know, and we love the end result. When you've worked in a dark editing room for a year and a half, the whole point of that is to sit with an audience and watch it, and it's enormously pleasurable to you know find yourself in that position either at a test screening or when you've finished you know when you're in a mixing stage, you know mixing theater or, or even at the premiere. you know it really is an enormous pleasure to see the end result of you know thousands of hours of work. And then to know that, you know, maybe people around the world will enjoy it and maybe enjoy it for many years to come, which is obviously the holy grail of a great film is around the world. Now, millions of people are watching Jaws, millions of people are watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, maybe millions of people are watching a Mission Impossible movie. But, you know, um, that's that's really what you dream of, you know, when you're working in the industry, I think is is having played a part, a small part in a film that may stand the test of time and entertain people for many decades. You know, I know Mission Impossible was made over 20 years ago and people are still watching it. So you you hope that films that you work on today may still, may stand the test of time. You, You pour your whole heart and soul into every frame of the film with that goal in mind. But, you know, making good films is incredibly hard and clearly not everyone succeeds at it all the time because it is so difficult and uh um so when it does when things work out right it is just it is is it is a great feeling you know and i've i've worked on films that haven't worked out so well and it's 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 heartbreaking because you've 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 worked on something for a year or a year and a half and you've climbed an enormous mountain and kind of got come down the other side and then and then the film doesn't quite work out and you have to kind of, you know, take, take a moment to take a breath and to, to, to remind yourself why you're hungry and passionate to do a great job and then start climbing another mountain, you know, and hope it works this time.
0: What do you think you're doing, Erica? It may be your
1: mission, but this is the CIA's plane. It doesn't take off without my say so. We need reliable intelligence and so we need it now. Uh, this scenario is precisely why the IMF exists. The IMF is Halloween, Alan. A bunch of grown men in rubber masks playing trick-or-treat. And if he had held on to the plutonium in Berlin, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And his team would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job. It's, you know, the audience reaction and the critical reaction was beyond anything we ever hoped for. You know, you, you dream of, of a great reaction to a film that you've worked on, but you really have no idea. You've seen it, I mean, I've, I've seen the film two or three hundred times, you know, and so... You don't, you, you have no emotional perspective, so you don't know for sure, but it's great feedback from audiences like yourself, which is, makes it all worthwhile. And, and, and I'm thrilled people love it. You know, it really makes me very excited and humbled and thankful to have been a part of it.
0: Allow me to move into the last portion of our conversation, specifically talking about Mission Impossible Fallout. And I wanted to ask you about working with exposition because McHugh talked about the fact that he wanted this new mission being in the vein of, you know, as if it was a new director, to feel like for the first 15 minutes, the filmmakers had forgotten how to make a Mission Impossible film. And and what I mean by that is that rather than opening with a big set piece, we have dream sequences, we have losing the plutonium, and in addition to that, we have the mission, which is a trope of a Mission Impossible film. You need to accept a mission. So I was wondering on your end, how is it working with a movie that is front-loaded? with exposition and what is the challenge of keeping the audience engaged
1: you know to be honest it was a it's a huge challenge we did get a lot of notes from people saying that the film could have been tighter at the beginning and we looked at the opening of the movie a hundred times and and kept refining it and Removed some great little sections from each scene that, that McHugh loved um, that we had that had to go because we were trying to get it as tight as possible but as emotionally accurate. So you have to leave moments for the suspense and for the action to play out so it's not confusing and the emotion of each moment by moment through the scenes so that the audience can feel it and, and feel the weight of the pressure on on Ethan and the team. So you know that was a place where we looked carefully at the score. And it came down to what graphics are on the screen during the mission, the voice of the mission. We tried all kinds of voices. You know, we tried... Alec Baldwin did a version of the mission, but people would watch it and go, hey, is that Alec Baldwin? And in the end, Chris Macquarie had done all the iterations of the mission because we kept rewriting it um to try and make it as concise and as accurate as possible and people go god that mission is like just an exposition dump you know it's really tough but every single thing that's in there does pay off later and and we we need to set up certain things there because we don't have time to set them up anywhere else you know we needed to set up the smallpox and Things like that in in the opening mission briefs, so when, at the end, when they're driving to Kashmir, Ethan can go, hey, smallpox. Good evening, Mr. Hunt. The anarchist Solomon Lane. Since you captured him two years ago, his absence from the world stage has had unintended consequences. His syndicate of rogue covert operatives continues to wreak havoc around the globe. The CIA's special activities division has relentlessly hunted Lane's elite network of hostiles, but many remain unknown and at large. The remnants of this extremist splinter cell refer to themselves as the Apostles. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to prevent the Apostles from acquiring Plutonium using any means at your disposal. If you or any members of your IMF team are caught or killed, the Secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. Good luck, Ethan. This message will self-destruct
0: in five seconds.
1: The, The movie structurally was never reconceived the original pitch that McHugh had about the dream and then Ethan waking up and then him, you know, losing the plutonium and then having to do a kind of traditional Mission Impossible sting to find a crucial piece of intelligence was always there. It was just a case of, you know, making it as concise as possible. I think the scene in the hospital that you referred to where Benji takes his mask off, I think in the movie now it's like five minutes or six minutes and it you know it started off as a 12 minute scene and then we got it down to eight minutes and then we got it down to six minutes i think that's the length that it is now and i think we managed to keep everything in there but i swear there's not the shots literally they can't be any shorter and still have emotional coherence you know and we rescored the the mission briefing quite a few times so it's got this kind of simmering like bum 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 bum, bum. Feel and we and we did play it dry at one point and we played it with just simple strings at some point but it but it, then it felt too slow and too much percussion and you can't understand what someone's saying so it, it was a real challenge to find the right orchestration for the music there but. Then the opening title sequence kicks off. But I think it happens about 22 minutes into the film.
0: Wow, that's a for real.
1: Yeah, it's a, exactly. It's a, the only film that we found where the title is later is The Departed, which I think comes about 26 minutes into the film. And I may be wrong about that, but it's around about that. And, and in that film, the title, The Departed, just comes up for about five seconds between one shot of Leonardo DiCaprio and another shot of Leonardo DiCaprio. Whereas we've got a whole proper kind of here's the movie montage, which, again, I'm well aware that as a fan of these movies, part of the fun of going to see them is what are they going to do with the opening montage and how are they going to treat the opening theme? How are we going to orchestrate the theme differently to how Hans Zimmer did it or how Danny Elfman did it or how Michael chino did it you know or joe kramer you you're like what are they going to do this time you know how are they going to make it sound like cool and different and so i know that people are buying a movie ticket to to get that experience so we're never going to short change them of that and then it was just a case of trying to get them into the, the grand palais as quickly as possible interestingly the the halo jump scene originally we had even less set up for and people just didn't understand it <laughs> why they were jumping in and then so we added, we actually added the lines where Ethan says, this, this plane is posing as a commercial airliner so we can jump into Paris undetected, which kind of explains why, you know, they, they've got very little time to get down to the Palais and, and why they're jumping out of a plane and landing on the roof rather than just getting an Uber, you know, and walking in the front
0: door. This plane is posing as a commercial airliner so we can jump into France undetected. The widow's meeting Lark at the VIP lounge at midnight. And? assume his identity. Make contact with the widow. She takes us to the package.
1: And then there was a very large, exciting action set piece once they got inside the, the Grand Palais, where they got trapped in these metallic walkways, these sort of trestles above, right in the roof of the Palais, and they couldn't figure out actually how to get down to the to the dance floor. And Ethan had to kind of crawl out along these wires which were supporting lights and then and then try and engineer a way that he could swing down and some of those shots are in an early trailer you can see Ethan swinging with Henry Cavill's character Walker kind of on the cable but again it was about three and a half maybe four minutes of this amazingly ambitious sequence filmed for real in the Grand Palais and really cool and and really showing Ethan's intelligence and ability to come up with some kind of mad solution to this problem that they had. But, you know, they we wanted to get into the bathroom fight as quickly as possible. So there was a whole section on the, on the dance floor where Ethan lost his phone tracker and it was kind of like lost amongst people's feet. And I mean, there was all kinds of stuff. And there was another scene where they met Ilsa in the crowd before they went into the bathroom. And so all that stuff went because we just wanted to get them down. You know, Walker was tracking Lark. You follow them into the bathroom, then you let that great suspense scene in the bathroom play out and the the humour of the French guys coming in and banging on the door and, you know, Ethan kind of looking at Walker going, you idiot, you know, you've broken the machine and we're in here and this is not how this was supposed to go. Get them to meet the white widow and get to the widow's house as quickly as possible. So... It was, it, we, we were well aware that it was quite long and our, our mission was to try and make it as tight as possible and just keep you engaged.
0: You never know how long the movie's gonna be and I think it's an admirable focused attempt by McHugh of, of inserting conflict coming from all directions. Oh, yeah, and yeah. The one, once you assemble it, you see what is pushing the story and what isn't. I wanted to very briefly ask you about something so beautiful. I was sitting in the theater last night and I realized that there's two moments in the movie where the focus the camera focus is slightly off on the character who's being shot and what that told me such a brave editorial choice i felt that you guys had chosen better performance takes and favoring even if the focus was slightly off and mick you talked about this for michelle monahan's yeah, character at the very end that's true talking about emotion and story and choosing to to embrace a take that provides more emotion
1: yeah story and emotion always wins it trumps any technical flaw in a shot always and it can be understandably frustrating for a dp or a focus puller when they watch the film and they're like guys you put a soft shot in the film sometimes they did go again and we have a sharper version but it just isn't not as magical you know sometimes they don't have a sharper version and you know, all the, every take the actor is like one inch forward of their mark. And sometimes when you're shooting with anamorphic lenses, you know, the depth of field is is inches, I mean, literally. So if the actor is an inch or two inches forward, even if their their eyes are forward from where they're supposed to be, and when they're acting, you don't really want them to be trying to keep their head still. You know, you want them to be able to move and to, to emote and to be natural. You just want them to be completely connected emotionally to the moment. And if you film on a 35 millimeter anamorphic camera, the only person who has a sense if the image is sharp is the operator who's physically looking through the viewfinder of the camera. And even then, the image is so small that you can't really tell if something is in sharp focus because you need to look at it on a big screen. So you are relying on the focus puller measuring physically with a tape measure, the distance, and then marking the focus. It's a very old fashioned technique, but it is what is necessary when you don't have an HD monitor and a digital camera. So it's part of the, the magic of film that you get this extraordinary textured analog image which I think suits these kinds of timeless movies. You know, I really love the choice to shoot on film when you're trying to make an entry in a franchise that's 20 years old and you hope that people are still going to be watching it. And it, and it feels right for that kind of spy adventure, you know, which, is quite, which is quite noir, to be honest, in, in huge chunks of the film. And, and the, the analogue film grain and texture, I think, just works well for that. But the side effect is that you get soft shots sometimes or you get you get hairs in the gate and stuff, but they can be removed digitally, but you can't really rescue focus. You can dial up sharpness in the digital intermediate or the grade on Resolve or bass light, whatever, a bit, but you can't really pull sharp contrast into someone's eye. And so with Michelle at the end... When I first saw that footage in New Zealand, I I actually took a Saturday morning off from editing in order to travel to the set and watch them film that because I wanted to be there to see the final sequence of the movie being filmed. And also I wanted to see the set because they, they had built this extraordinary medical camp in the middle of nowhere in New Zealand. And it was an hour and a half on a bumpy road leaving at half past five in the morning from the crew hotel in order to get there by 7am and then have breakfast and then sort of set up the, the lighting and, and the sound and rehearse the actors so that by the time the sun came up, we could roll cameras. So it was an enormous privilege to be there and watch that being filmed. And I had no idea if the shot, you know, I was watching the HD video tap and it all looked fine to me. But then I got the dailies back from the lab and, you know, I was kind of heartbroken to see that it, these, these images on Michelle, who is just the most wonderful actress and who, who captured the emotion of that scene so perfectly with Tom that it was soft. And I remember saying, I think we may have to have another go at this. You know, and it is a close-up. So when you're back at Leaves and Studios in London, many months later, you go and try and recapture that. And the day that Michelle came to London to redo that... They were very short on time. And there was some footage that had been filmed of Tom Cruise and Henry Cavill hanging in the helicopters at the end. And some of the special effects rigs were very complicated and stuff took longer to film. So they had a lot less time with Michelle at the end of the day. And I remember I brought my laptop to McHugh and showed him all the takes of Michelle that we would got in New Zealand. And he's like, "Yep, that's definitely the best stuff. And I think we're gonna live with it because it's brilliant. And even with Michelle being as brilliant as she is, one, we haven't really got time. And two, I don't want her to be under pressure to have to deliver this emotion in an hour or half an hour, whatever much we've got. And we still have to do a dream sequence. And actually they were gonna do something where she kind of steps out of some darkness and then Lane appears behind her. And Chris was saying, I think it's a bit lame. I get, actually, do you know what? We've got the Grand Palais lighting rig over there. Bring me those lights, quickly set them up. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And so we managed to get this, this eerie image, this silhouette of Ethan walking out of the lights and then a reverse shot of Michelle Moynihan. So that's how that ended up. And we just embraced the fact that the emotion of that scene with her at the end was amazing. And we probably weren't gonna get it better. We weren't gonna nail the emotion of that scene again it may be in focus but it probably wouldn't have been as good but to be honest any of you filmmakers out there who are wondering about this you know emotion and story always trumps you know technical quality of a shot and every film has soft shots in it and the reason they're in there is because it's the best take you know and it's the right decision to make feeling the emotion of the scene and it's fine it's yeah, ultimately...
0: there's so much we could talk about, but I can't thank you enough for taking the time to break down your work and your creative process. Eddie, thank you so, so much for joining us.
1: It's a pleasure, thank you for having me.
0: And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Eddie for sitting down with us and sharing these stories with such excitement. Also, a big thank you to Eric Boss and the hours he puts in to mix these conversations. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate, share, and subscribe. We appreciate all the love and want to continue bringing you new episodes month after month. Thanks again, and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening to Soundstage Access.